You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale begins our new sermon series, Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Glad that you have made worship a part of your priority to begin the week. This morning, we're beginning a brand new series called Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. And so this morning, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book, the book of Deuteronomy, as, as Moses is preparing the people uh, of Israel to enter into the Promised Land. And so if you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and flip on over to that and, and, and hold that ready. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one probably in the pew back in front of you. This morning we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people get a little antsy about when you talk about it in church. And actually for the next several weeks we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the topic of money. And I know it, that's the stereotype that churches always are, they just want you to come so they can get your money. Well, well, I'll just, let me be real frank and real honest with you about this. God doesn't need your money, okay? So there we can get that out of the way. God doesn't need your money. Um, the church needs money to operate, but God doesn't need your money, okay? If you think that the church only exists to take your money and that God needs your money, then let me just clear this misconception up for you right now. God doesn't need it. He didn't need it a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, and he doesn't need it today. Okay, so if if you're concerned about that, I want to put your put your concerns to rest right now. God doesn't need your money. As a nation, we are finally beginning to recover from one of the worst recessions that we have seen since the Great Depression of 1929. The Great Recession of 2008 caused massive financial suffering from across, across the country. And now I know most of us weren't around for the, the first Great Depression. I, I said in first service, for the like, except for the likes of Mike Bell and Sarah Springer, they were probably the only ones here for the first uh, Great Depression. But, but we all were here for the last the recession, and we felt that. And financially speaking, life is finally starting to get back to a, a, a state of normalcy. However, unemployment and underemployment are, are still concerns for many people. Poverty consen- continues to plague many people in our country and across the world. The national debt continues to climb and, it's con- and it is still a concern uh, for our country. And the same has happened on a global front. If you uh, followed the, the financial crisis of, of Greece, then you know that they, they have gone through the economic turmoil. In fact, the Washington Post in one of their recent articles said that it would take them probably at least another 10 years to get back to where they were in 2007 before they felt this recession. China is one of the largest global economies in the world, and they too are, are having... Uh, you know, an economic downturn or have had an economic downturn. And so those are real threats that, that could, could really hurt the global economy in real ways. And so as a response to that, we need to be responsible. We need to be financially responsible. And I think the best way to learn about finances and the best place to turn to for financial counseling, financial advice, is the Scriptures. The Bible has over 2,300 verses about money. And so if we're looking for a place to turn that has some solid advice uh, on, on this topic, we should look no further than the Scriptures. And so I think there are, there's a simple formula for improving our financial health. 
Four biblical principles plus four uh, practical purposes. The biblical principles are simple. Gratitude, contentment, trust, and humility. You get those four biblical principles plus these four practical practices, debt-free living, saving, budgeting, and giving. And when you put those two together, the, they equal the, the, the sum of that math equation is real profit. These four biblical principles plus the four practical practices give you real profit. And when I say profit, I mean something of value, not just dollars and cents, but something of value. And here's what I believe, that when our financial house is in order, it makes it easier to get other things in order. It makes living a little easier. It makes uh, family life a little easier. Do you all know what the number one topic of argument among, amongst uh, married couples is? Money. We argue about money, or usually the lack thereof, more than any other topic. So it would, it would do us well to understand some biblical principles about money and where it comes from and what it can buy and what it can't buy so that we might live better. And when we realize and when we're willing to admit that, that we have too much, and when we live with less in the land of more, life really does improve. Money can buy a lot of things. It can buy a bed, but it will not buy sleep. Money can buy books, but it will not buy intellect. Money can buy food, but not an appetite. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy uh, amusements, but not fulfillment and enjoyment. Money will allow you to travel anywhere in the world except for heaven. So real profit is not measured in dollars. How many of you remember the candy lifesavers? It's still, it's still a candy that's available you can buy, but how many of you remember the candy lifesavers? How many of you were around when it came out? Mike, this would be again you and Sarah Springer. Uh, <laughs> They, they were America's favorite candy created back in the, in the summer of 1912, and they were created as a hard candy that would not melt in the heat of summer. Now, if you are familiar with Lifesavers, you know that, that that whole idea that they would not melt in the heat is not true, because I have blue jeans that will tell you otherwise, because I've left them in my pocket, and they have melted, or they've been thrown in the dryer, and the dryer heat has melted them, and that makes just for a real nice mess to clean up. But Lifesavers became a popular candy, and it got its shape from this, a life preserver, a lifesaver. Now, we see these all, all over the place. We see them on sides of pools and on, uh, at the beach on lifeguard towers. We see them on the sides of boats, and that's where they got their, their shape from. And so I want you to keep that in the forefront of your mind as we move into our text this morning. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 8 again, as I said, and just a a real quick context about what was happening here. Moses is about to die. He is writing this, uh, and he, what we're going to read are the, are the account of the Israelite nation, and at this point in their history, Moses is about to die. They are about to move into the promised land. Remember last week, we to, I told you that it should have taken them 12 days to get into the promised land, but it took them 40 years, and they are now at the end of 40 years, and they're about to move into the promised land. And so Moses gathers the, the people together, the Israelite nation, and he begins to give them not one, not two, but three farewell sermons. And, he begin, and he's, he's going to remind them of, of the things that God has done for them in the past. And the reason he's going to do this is because he's now speaking to a younger generation. 
Like I said, they've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and so that first generation of, of people that came across the Red Sea that made the exodus out of Egypt, these, the people that he's talking to, their moms and dads, their grandmas and grandpas, their aunts and uncles, well, they're all dead now. They have wandered around in the desert for too long, and they are dead. And now it's a new generation that, that didn't experience a lot of the things that that, that first generation experienced. And so Moses is preparing them for their moving day when they would leave the land of less and move into the land of plenty, the promised land. And knowing that he would soon die and that this this younger generation was going to need some godly advice and godly wisdom, he begins to tell them in these three sermons and remind them of who has provided all of these things for them so far. In fact, Moses keeps referring to how God was on display among the Israelites. And here's a, here's a portion of what he said in his first sermon. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to read the first six verses. Moses says, Be careful to follow every command that I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither, of you, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you what man, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to Him and revering Him. I think there's a couple of principles that we can pull from this and, uh, and we're going to see play out in the, in the next few verses. But the first one is simply this, that God gives. God gives. And not only does God give, but God is, is a generous giver. In fact, He's an outrageously generous giver. His generosity was on display among the Israelites and His people lived in the desert, in a desert wasteland for 40 years and yet their needs were met. God met their needs. And think about this. They, when they came across the Red Sea, the book of Exodus tells us that they, they were numbered about 600,000 men, besides women and children. So it's safe to speculate that there was a similar number of women. And in, in, in those days, those families had lar- uh, large families. They had lots of kids. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons and a number of daughters, enough to field a football team. And, and so they were, conservatively speaking, probably three to four million people who wandered around in the desert for 40 years. Marching out of Egypt, 50, side by side, they would have made a column over 40 miles long. And if you figure that they walked at about two and a half miles per hour, it would have taken them 16 hours for all the people to pass the same point. So think about that. Almost an entire day for the last person to get where the first person began. They would require 30 railroad boxcars of food per day and 300 tanker cars of water per day. And as they moved through the desert, it would not take long needing that much that you would soon quickly find yourself running out of necessities. But God provided for their needs. He, he provided water from a rock when they were running out of water. He provided bread 
uh, manna when they, when they didn't have anything to eat. He, when they got tired of eating the bread and the manna, they asked for, can we have something different? And he said, okay, you want something different? Here's quail, you can have some meat. And here's a, here's a real fascinating thing to me, at least, about the, the migratory habits of quail in the Middle East. In the Middle East, each fall, these birds will begin to make their flight from Central Europe to Turkey. And as they fly over the Mediterranean Sea, it's all done in a single flight. So this, this flight is done in, in one single flight at a very high speed, at a very high altitude. And so when they cross over the sea, they finally get over land, they begin to, to basically nosedive to the ground because they're exhausted. And they lay there motionless for hours. In fact, they, they would do this so much that the Bedouin people would easily harvest the bird. And so it's not hard to understand how God had provided meat for, these, for His people to eat. They simply, all they had to do was go out and pick up the birds off the ground. Now, how many of you, when you were, were, were younger, you would you see a bird on the ground and you, you're walking around and you try to chase it? You never got to it, did you? We, when we were walking our dog, she's, she's quick. And, and she's easily distracted. So if a bird walks, get, catches in her line of sight, she wants to go for it. And she's quick, I'm telling you. And, and, and she's strong, so oftentimes she pulls me along behind her. But she's going after that bird, and very rarely does she ever catch one. Not enough that I would want to have to depend on her for food. But God said, you, need, you, want, you want meat? Okay. I'm going to put these birds, these birds that are going to fly right through here, and then they're going to lay here for you to pick them up. God gives. God was simply being Himself a giver. And from the opening pages of Scripture, God, God started giving. He created an indescribable earth and said to Adam, I give you every green plant for food. God gave the Israelites manna and quail and shoes that did not wear out. Do you notice that? He said, your clothes, for 40 years, your clothes and your shoes haven't worn out. How many of you have to buy your kids new shoes every, every school, uh, beginning of the school year? All right? Nike and Adidas can't make these kind of shoes. Their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. And it all culminates with God giving the greatest gift of all in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His Son. God is a giver. God is an outrageously good giver. He's a lifesaver. We read on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 and 9. We, we continue on. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and, and uh, deep springs gushing into the valleys and hills, and a land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. You read that and you think things are beginning to look up for God's people. They were beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. They were about to leave behind their land of lack and enter into a land of more. And so how was God able to be so outrageously generous with them? Well, simply put, God owns. God owns everything. It was His to give. Psalm 24 one states that the earth... And the, is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50.10 declares that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything that is in this world, God owns. And so if you want to know how God can be so generous with, with, all of his resource, with all the resources, it's simply because it's His to give. And notice in verse 9 that the Israelites would lack nothing. All of their needs would be met by God, the owner and the giver of all things. God was on display all of the things that he had done for them was so that he 
might be displayed because God gives and God owns. Then we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 20, we continue on. It says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God calling to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving to you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He has led you through this vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. He's brought you out. He's brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You might say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. And don't miss this warning. Verse 19, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify to you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. We can't help but notice that the Israelites were about to experience some conspicuous consumption. And with the risk of gorging themselves with with all that was available to them in the promised land, uh, Moses has some, some words of warning for them because they're, they're getting ready to leave a land that has been a desolate place for them, a land that has, for, for no other better words, a land that has lacked. And now they're going to move into a land of plenty. And so Moses warns them when you feast on food and you, en- you enjoy your new spacious homes and, and your crops are growing and your herds are increasing and, you, and there's money coming in, there's, you're making some money on your investments, you're accumulating all of this stuff. Don't get big-headed. And don't think that all of this stuff you have gotten on your own. Remember what it was like to be in the desert when you had nothing and God provided. Now that you're living, moving into a new land, remember it is still God who is providing. And so God is able to generously give from what He owns. And we ask, well, how, how is He able to do that? Well, simply put, because God controls. God, God, God gives, God owns, and God controls. God controls all that He owns. Notice in verses 19 and 20 that God is sovereign, though, and that He causes nations to both rise and to fall. And after going through a great suffering, Job declared, for the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, in reference to God, said God causes the the sun to rise on the good and on the evil. He says that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is sovereign, and He gave the Israelites manna and quail, but He could have stopped doing that at any time He wanted to. He gave them an abundant land to move into, but he could, have, he could have taken that away from them just as easy. Moses told the people time and time and time again to obey the commands that God had given them, to obey the laws that they had given them as an expression of their worship and love for Him. Not because God is a, is a God who sits on, on a throne in, in the sky and he's, just, he's this heavenly judge just waiting for you to, to mess up and to, and to smite you. No, that's not, that's not why Moses is telling them to, to obey the laws. He's telling them, obey the laws, obey the commands, because this is the way that you worship. 
This is how you respond to all of the goodness that God has done for you. Bella Gaudet, who comes to, is a member of our church, she comes to first service normally. Uh, she runs a, a canine training academy. And I love her motto. Her motto is, the, the purest form of love is obedience. And that's exactly what Moses is telling the Israelite people. Obey the laws that God has given you because you love Him. So if you love Him, do this. Obey, obey what He has said. Because God gives, God owns, God controls, and God has been on display. And so how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Because we could say, because God is never changing, God is, not, uh, is, is unmutable, so He never changes, so we could say the same thing for our lives today, that God gives. And I don't think there's anybody in here that could deny that we have all been blessed by God, and in, in many faucets of our life, generously blessed. And yet God owns. Everything that we have is a God's. And God controls. And so how do we respond to that? Because we can read about what the Israelite people went through. But if we can't look at it and figure out what our response is, then, then it's just another story. So how do we, we respond? I think there's only one way to respond. It's worship. Worship is, is the way in which we, we respond to God's goodness. And worship always happens in two parts, in revelation and in response. God reveals Himself as the one who gives, who owns, who controls. And being that God is, is never changing, He still does that. He still gives, owns, and controls. And so we respond in two simple ways. By acknowledging. We first have to acknowledge that God does own and control everything. That He is the source of all that we have. In a poll taken by British Nutrition Foundation, they questioned 27,500 children. Uh, from, from the ages of 5 to 16 years old about the origins of food. And according to the sum, uh, summary that was in a BBC article, about almost a third of UK primary students think that cheese, primary would be elementary students, think that cheese is made from plants. Okay? And a quarter of them think that fish fingers, fish fingers, fish sticks, come from chicken or pigs. Nearly one in ten middle school and high school students think they are confused about how tomatoes grow. They think that they grow underground. The survey also revealed confusion about the source of, of staple foods such as pasta and bread. They, the younger students believe that they came from meat, that bread would come from cows. About 19% of this age group did not realize that potatoes grew in the ground. And about 10% thought that they grew on bushes and trees. And so we can hear that and we can kind of chuckle about it. And it's easy for, for especially small kids to get confused about where things come from. I'm reminded of that Kraft uh, cheese commercial where it came from the moon, right? That's where, where all cheese was made from. We can laugh about that, but it's even more tragic when children and adults, when adults don't realize that God is the ultimate source of food, that God is the ultimate source of all good things. And as adults, our pride makes us just as confused sometimes as these children. We think that we are the source of, of all that we have, that our skills, that our knowledge, and our hard work have produced all that we have. And to that line of thinking, Jesus would respond, Come again? You think that you did all of this? You think that you have earned all of this? 
I've got something to say about that, Jesus would say. In fact, he did have something to say about it. He told a parable about a guy, a farmer, who, who thought he was the source of all that he had. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, this is what Jesus, uh, the parable Jesus told, he said, He thought to himself, what shall I do, the farmer? What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will, build, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. God said to him, you fool. And when we think that what we accumulate, what we achieve, what we amass uh, in our possessions, that our wealth and that our power is by our skill, we only have one name in the sight of God. And that's fool. He would look at us and say, how could you be so foolish? And it's easy for us to do that because we, we're, we're a country, that, especially for men, we're, we're, it's ingrained in us that we earn our keep, right? That we work hard for, for what we have. And that's not to say that we shouldn't work hard, but we need to realize that the source of, of our energy to, that enables us to work hard comes from God. We must acknowledge that God is our provider, that He gives us the ability to produce uh, an, a living, to earn a paycheck, that He gives us the intellect and the skill and the, the opportunity to earn all of those things so that we can put food on the table and keep a roof over our heads because God is a generous giver. He's a lifesaver. God is a lifesaver. President Teddy Roosevelt, when he, while he was the president, would from time to time take his family intentionally outside to the, to the porch of the White House. And they would look at the stars. And, and President Roosevelt taught his, his, especially his young children, but also his wife, just to look up into the stars and to be able to, to identify the Big Dipper and the North Star but also to be able to look for God. And after standing out there for a little while and just taking in the enormous, the enormous, the enormousosity, I guess that's not a word. I made a word up. As he would take in how big the sky was. We'll go with that, how big the sky was. After a while, he would look over at his kids and say, okay, I think we're small enough again. We can go back in. We have to be able to realize, to acknowledge that God provides everything that we need. So we acknowledge and then we act. We need to respond in a God-honoring way. Think with me on this for, for a moment. God was outrageously generous with Adam and Eve. We, we talked about that just a moment ago. He told them, it's all yours. Enjoy it. You can have any of the plants, trees, all the animals. They're all here for you. You, you can enjoy all of this. Stay away from the one tree. Don't eat the fruit from that one tree. Stay away from it. And how did Adam and Eve react? In open rebellion, right? Because they had, they had everything they could have ever imagined. And yet, it wasn't enough. More was never enough for Adam and Eve. They had to go to the one place that God said, stay away. You've got all of these trees, all of this land, all of these, the plants, fruits, what, whatever you want, it's yours. Stay away from the one tree. And more was not enough. They didn't respond in a God-honoring way. Nor did the Israelites. God gave them the promised land full of farms and houses and businesses, none of which they themselves built. And what was their response? 
Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, two and a half tribes said, thanks, but no thanks, God. We like things just the way they are. We like it better where we're at now. They were ungrateful, unappreciative children. In our culture, we would call them spalt brats. They, they remind me of the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus. He heals the ten lepers, and, and when one man returns to give thanks, Jesus says, well, where are the other nine? Weren't all ten healed? And they didn't come back. They didn't respond to God in, an, in a God-honoring way. They didn't respond to Jesus in a way that honored Him. And, and I, I often question, when we look at everything that we have, we look at our possessions, we look at the, the wealth, and, and let me just tell you, you, you may be thinking, well, I don't really have that much. If you live in America, I'm just by default, even if you live on the streets in America, you are among the 2% wealthiest people in the world. Okay? So you look at that, you put it in perspective. We are blessed. And I often wonder how we respond to God. Do we acknowledge that He's the source of all good? Do we give thanks? Do we respond with gratitude? Or do we kind of thumb our nose at Him? Think, it's me. I'm I'm the one that that did this. Imagine falling off a, a ship. You're, you're on a cruise or whatever. Jeff, can you catch this if I throw it out there to you, Mike? Yeah, all right. Jeff's saying, no, I can't catch this. But you've fallen off a ship, and uh, I'm going to throw it. There you go. Still awake. He's still awake. But imagine you fell off a ship into the ocean, and you don't know how to swim, and you're going to drown. If something doesn't happen for you, if someone doesn't intervene for you, and somebody throws you a life preserver just like that, and you cling to it, you you paddle over to it, and you cling to it, you wrap your arms around it, and you're holding on to it for dear life, and they throw you a rope, and they begin to pull you in, and they finally get you back up on the boat. How do you respond when you get back on the boat? Do you look at all the people and go, man, did you see how good I swam to that life preserver? Did you see my arms as I was clinging to that thing? Did you see my biceps? I mean, it must have taken 20 of you all to pull me up on this boat. I'm, I'm that strong. Did you see me? No, we wouldn't respond like that. We would run over to the person that threw us the life preserver. We'd wrap our arms around them and we'd hug them and we'd thank them and thank them and thank them for saving our life. And yet God has done the exact same thing for us. When we could do nothing for ourselves, God threw us a life preserver. He, he literally opened the doors of heaven and allowed His Son to walk out of heaven so that we could have a life preserver. And so how do we respond to that? Do we say, look at me. I am killing it. I am, I am, I am just doing all of this and I am killing it. Or do we respond with gratefulness and thankfulness and let God be on display in our lives so today really the 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 question is simply this to what degree are you going to allow God to be on display in your life how are you going to let God be on display are you going to let God be on display or are you just going to thumb your nose at him